0: everyone, and welcome to Coaches Clubhouse Season 2, The COVID Year. I'm your host, Nicole Auerbeck. We've spent much of the season of the show talking to coaches from all over the sports world about what happened when it shut down due to the pandemic in early 2020. More importantly, these coaches have told us how they supported their athletes and their programs during such a challenging and surreal time. We've heard stories from inside the NBA bubble and about the Zoom fatigue we've all experienced. We've even learned how Olympic swimmers were forced to train in their neighbors' pools to stay in shape. Today's guest did something different with all the free time he suddenly had. He got to thinking and got to creating real and lasting change. Mike Loxley is heading into his third season as the head football coach of his hometown, Maryland Terrapins. He is currently one of just 13 blackhead coaches at the FBS college football level. Like so many of us, he was deeply affected by the death of George Floyd and the worldwide protests that followed, calling out for change in various industries and asking those in positions of power to look inward. Loxley decided to do something about his own profession of coaching. He took on the lack of diversity in the coaching ranks and created what he called the National Coalition of Minority Football Coaches. The goal is to remove roadblocks to coaching opportunities for minorities through innovative programming, networking, and first-of-its-kind promotion strategies. Some of the sport's most successful coaches, such as Mike Tomlin and Nick Saban, have also gotten involved in the organization. My conversation with Loxley is a bit like a time capsule. It took place before the Big Ten started their football season in late 2020. We discussed why he felt the time was right to start his organization and what he hopes to accomplish, but we also talk about how he dealt with the postponement and the restart of the Big Ten football season. Now, here is my interview with Mike Loxley. Mike, I want to start right in the middle of everything changing. Where were you when sports shut down? Were were you at practice? Were you in a meeting? Like, what was that day and time like?
1: Yeah, I think for me, it started maybe the Thursday, maybe I want to say March 11th. And, you know, we'd started hearing rumors. But then the next morning, we had our uh, early morning workouts. We called it our Turk Time uh, training. And we do that at 6 a.m. inside of uh, our indoor facility there at Cole Field House. And I can remember uh while I was on the field, I got a call from my sports administrator and basically telling me that, you know, because of this pandemic, which at the time none of us were so were familiar enough with COVID 19 and the coronavirus. And and I, I'm thinking this is something out of a sci-fi movie and uh and then it became real because they're like, so we're going to let them go for spring break and then we're going to give them an extra week of spring break. And I'm just saying to myself, wow, like this is this is really serious. And then the next thing I know from March 12th until probably June 1, I was stuck at home and uh, it was a different way of life and uh, it was really, really interesting times.
0: So, you know, when it kind of, sinks in that everyone's going to kind of be home indefinitely. You're not going to see your guys. I mean, I'm sure as a coach, you're never really in this position anymore. Like these players are usually pretty much on campus year round. Um, Obviously we all learned how to do zoom and virtual meetings. What else was that kind of early pandemic period? Like for you as a coach?
1: Well, for me, it was a really weird time because I think it was the first time in a long, long time for me. I mean, I'm talking 20 years that I had just me. Um, you know, my wife had flown to our place in Florida to meet my daughter who was finishing up spring break uh, the week of March 12th. And they wind up staying down there for all the way up until right around Mother's Day. And here I'm stuck up in uh, Maryland by myself. And it, it was crazy for my life to be just at a standstill. It forced me to stop everything. Now, you know, for me, I always have to have something going on or I would go crazy. So I tried to focus on my, my health, my physical health. And, um, I will say admit on here that I wound up, uh, one of my good friends who's a personal trainer. He came over four days a week. Uh, we lifted weights. He uh, had me outside running on things I hadn't done since maybe I was a player, uh, Obviously, with my wife being gone uh, and not a lot of restaurants open, food was scarce. So, I was one of those people that uh, tended to lose a little weight during COVID, as opposed to gain, which was probably very beneficial for me. So, um, you know, I
0: I don't think I don't think that's fair. I think, like for most of us, we were eating worse, we weren't exercising. The people who lost weight and decided to be healthier during COVID, it's just you know, it's just an unfair proposition.
1: It is, you know, and most of it came that I promised myself that I would only drink on Fridays and Saturdays. (laughs) that, That played probably more of a role than any because with my wife being gone, being home and going through just having to like really pause your life. And like, I mean, I'm a guy that has a million things going at one time that that's what makes me tick. And now I'm forced with having 24 hours a day of trying to figure out you know, what to do with all this time. And, you know, I, I wanted to be, cre- I wanted to be uh, creative with it. I wanted to make sure that I also was productive with my time. And, you know, like you said, learning the virtual meeting game and how to operate Zoom and all the other things, uh, you know, got creative and did some other things as well that I'm sure we'll talk about here soon. But uh, it was the first time in my life that I had to stop. And normally for a coach, idle time is not a good thing for coaches or players.
0: During this time, how much are you thinking about like football coaching? Obviously, I know you're checking in on your players, but, you know, obviously, and we're going to get into this more, but to think broader about like the industry as a whole and black coaches, like when did you start to take that step back and, and think about the profession?
1: Yeah, I think the big piece for me was, you know, I'm always one of those guys, I'm an avid reader, love to read books about Successful people, uh, you know, books on coaching, uh, business books on leadership; those things are, are things that that generate thought process for me and mentally stimulating. And so, um, during this time, it gives you an opportunity to do a three hundred and sixty of yourself. Um, and as I like to tell people, I, I turned fifty on Christmas Day a year ago, and uh, my giver. Crap gauge is probably more on e than it's ever been, meaning that I and I'm not here to be politically correct. I'm not going to kind of ease my way through things. And if something's not right, I'm gonna say it. And I'm gonna instead of being part of the pr- problem, I'm gonna be part of the solution. And that's some of the things I challenge our players with. You know, obviously dealing with the social injustice things that have happened. You know, it's great and easy to sit back and say, hey, you know, we're being oppressed we're things aren't going our way. But, okay, what are we going to do about it? And for me, that's what kind of generated the the National Coalition of Minority Football Coaches was that as I look back at my career, I mean, I was a guy that was on a fast track in 2007 or eight, coming off a Rose Bowl year. And I got a job at uh, the University of New Mexico where, as I like to say, I failed miserably. Um, probably as much as I thought I was prepared, I don't think like any, anybody else that you are actually, you know, you're ready until you go through it. And, and because of failing miserably had to basically restart or rebrand myself. And, uh, you know, when I look at that, and at that point, I can remember at one point there were like 17 or 18 minority coaches when I got, when I was coaching at New Mexico, at one point, I think it had gotten to as high as 18 and the NFL was up, up in the tens. And 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 then when I look back now, you know, we're at 14 again, and this is almost 12 years later, and the NFL is down to four. And, you know, as I sat around, I thought about my journey to being a head coach again, which is why I said my give a crap gauge is on E. Um, and I said, what can I do instead of complaining about it to maybe help uh, change the narrative? Because, you know, I was a part of you know, myself and Pep Hamilton was a part of putting together the first. Uh, we had a quarterback summit. We called it the Quarter Black Summit. Uh, back in 2018, uh, we met at uh, you know Morehouse College, and all the top minority uh, coordinators and quarterback coaches all throughout the country came there and spent the day just basically exchanging ideas. And the NFL sat in on it, really liked the thought of it, and and took it, and and they made it bigger and better. And it became the quarterback summit the last two years with the NFL that I've taken a part of. And it's really brought to attention that there are some talented minority coaches out there that just, you know, when you hear that, you know, we don't have enough. And, you know, we don't know who they are when people say the reason that they're not hiring uh, minority coaches. You know, as I had this extra time and idle time to sit back, I started making calls because I've gotten so many calls over my 30 year career as a division one college coach, when people are looking for minority coaches, because of me being long of tooth in this profession, I get calls and says, Hey, I'm looking for a good young minority linebacker coach, a good young receiver coach. So I I've gotten those calls over the last 30 years often, especially as I've gotten older and uh, my reputation in the business has grown. And so I've loosely been doing it, but then I decided let's, let's, let's tie it together. Let's get some of the people that really played a major role in helping me get to back to where I am and getting to where I am. And I started making calls to, you know, I talked to Mike T over with the Steelers, Coach Tomlin, uh, Rick Smith, and I came in this business together. He was a well, uh, uh, well thought of general manager and vice president of the Texans. Uh, I called Debbie Yao, my former boss here, who has always been instrumental and has been a really great mentor. Uh, you know, I talked to Desiree over at UNLV, the athletic director there. I remember my conversation with her was that, hey, I was looking for some minorities to interview, and i'm thinking well there's plenty of them. I mean, I met him and saw him at this quarterback summit, and so uh, talked to Coach Sabin and I told him what I wanted to do i said look i'm I'm not going want to create issues or problems. I just want to be a part of the solution of finding a way to create a group or organization or a group that can help champion opportunities for minority coaches. And minorities aren't just people of color, but also women. As you see, there's so many women that are coming up in this profession now. And, you know, we want to be a voice. And I, and I wanted to create a, a system that, as we like to say, the three P's of our organization, prepare, promote, and produce. And we want to do it at every level because I've hired high school coaches like Elijah Brooks, who was a high school coach that wanted to coach at this level. Well. Let's figure out what tools you need to coach at this level. Let's make sure we do a good job of when you do a good job where you are of promoting it so that we get it out to the media, we get it out to the masses that there are people there that are very successful quarterback, high school coaches, youth league coaches, college coaches that are ready and prepared to take the next step. And then the last piece is produce. And that's where I thought putting together the board of, uh, the board that we put together, guys like Bill Polian, Nick Saban, Mike Tomlin, Doug Williams, Ozzie Newsom, all these powerful people that have been leaders in this profession, the football profession, to help produce a list of viable candidates that we're not saying you have to hire. We're saying they're there and all they need is an opportunity. And hopefully we've given them the tools through our organization or through their experiences to, make, to prepare them We've promoted the fact that these guys are doing bang up jobs at where they are uh, across the country at all the different levels. And then produce this list to the decision makers that are making these decisions to say, hey, here's a list of people. Because I know there's this narrative that we don't know where they are. Well, the coalition is going to provide you the names and use it how you see fit and, and, and make sure that, you know, the reason they don't get the job is because they don't know. And uh, it's all about the opportunity for us as an organization, and that's what we fight for. We want to champion for our members.
0: I'm sure um, you know this is a pretty straightforward question for you, but why is it so important for offensive coordinators and quarterbacks coaches to be people that you are champion, preparing, promoting? Because I mean, obviously that's where football is going these days. But to your point, I mean, it seems like people don't realize there are black coaches in these positions.
1: Yeah, I mean, and it's not that we're just championing the quarterback coaches or the coordinators on offense. I mean, it's defensive guys as well. But I think if you look at the hiring trends over the last few cycles, at one point when minority coaches were being hired, it wasn't the D coordinator position or defensive position more than the offense. And I I don't know that answer as to why because you know when I looked around the room when we had the first quarterback summit that we put together and then the NFL took it over and made it the quarterback summit, there were some really talented individuals in there that have done and had done some really great things as coordinators and as quarterback coaches, as minority coaches. And so um to me that's where it's a matter of promoting the job that these guys have done and that that they continue to do. I don't know why it's been that way. Um, You know, I read all the stuff about, you know, it's a position of power where you have to think and all those things. And you know, having been that guy and been in that room with the quarterbacks and coached that position and coordinated uh, at a lot of different levels for, and most of the guys I coordinated for were head coaches that were defensive-minded guys. So it wasn't as if I was working under an offensive-minded guy. You know, Nick Saban's a defensive coach. Ron Zook's a defensive coach. Randy Etzel was a defensive coach. So to me, it's just a matter of knowing who they are, doing a great job of championing for them that they're prepared. And if not prepared, find out what some of the deficiencies they have and create the programming from our organization to to fill the gap with that, Uh, promoting the information to people like yourself and like the media that, that maybe don't know the stories of some of the talented coaches that are at HBCUs and, uh, some of the lower-level Division Two, II, Three NAIA programs that have done great jobs of putting great systems together and leading, and then again, you know, making contact with the, the powers that be that make these decisions and creating the list to say, "Hey, we do have people that be worth looking at." And based off of being vetted by the board that we have created, guys that have won Super Bowls, won national championships, hired big-time coaches. This isn't a list of just like, you know, locks his friends. These are lists that have been vetted by some of the more influential and powerful and successful people in the business uh, that when they put their name on a guy, I think it carries a little more weight.
0: Yeah. What I, what I like about the, the format here is, you know, I get asked a lot of times for women in journalism, right? Recommendations, yeah. people, you know, want to make sure they're not only interviewing white dudes same right. thing in coaching. And it's like, you know, you can have your list, you can do it informally, like you're describing, but I love that it's getting, it's, it's giving people a cheat sheet so that they can't use that, like not asking me or someone for a recommendation as an excuse to not right. even interview or look at candidates that don't look like themselves. Like, I think that is such an effective um, output for an organization like this.
1: Right. And I, and I think that's the way that, that it's It's when it's presented that way. It doesn't feel pushed. Um, Doesn't feel pushed on 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 an organization. Um, We're here to be a resource. We're here to be a a a resource to help with the process. If you choose to be, and if you don't, uh, it's your loss. Because you know, again, with the people that we have affiliated with this coalition, um, these are people that normally when they pick up the phone and call somebody, people answer, and. You know I'm very, you know, blessed and and very humbled that the people like Bill Polian, Nick Saban, Ozzy, Doug Williams, uh, and, and a lot of these people were, were mentors for me that helped get me back to this position. And it's just a matter of me explaining what it is I wanted to do, and for them to put their name on it and get behind this group. And if you look at the diversity even on the board, I mean, it's like what we fight across the board with social injustice. It takes all of us to help all of us. And it's more like I said, the locker room where, you know, nobody really cares. Uh, You know, we all on one team. And so the coalition is one team that's trying to champion opportunities for minority coaches. And and we're not trying to stranglehold people into doing it. We're not trying to bully people into doing it. Uh, We do want to make sure they know that there are qualified, viable candidates that are minorities that can do the job.
0: We we caught up, um, you know, soon after George Floyd's killing and and this whole new wave um, of of social activism from players from coaches. Obviously, I know your players were involved. You're you're processing all of this while thinking about again your profession. This ma- these macro issues that really do go in concert. What was it like to kind of be processing that as a black man as a coach? And again, thinking of, okay, there's parallels in my profession about just making sure that there's fairness and that there's opportunities and that people are not judged, you know, before you get to know someone just based on how they look. I mean, I'm sure that was just a lot going on at once.
1: Yeah, there, there was so much to, to, to digest, uh, you know, for me, even not just as a coach, um, but also as a father, you know, I've raised, you know, three black men, uh, my sons and then the countless other 105 players every year that, you know, I've raised and uh, it was a lot to digest. And it was, uh, I did a lot of soul searching. Uh, I'm a big believer on educating yourself on these issues and not being emotional. Um, as I like to tell our team, nothing good ever happens when you make emotional decisions and the more you can take a step back and, breathe and take it all in, internalize it, and then kind of express yourself with, with clear mind and clear thought. Uh and we were able to do that because of the pandemic. Um, you know, it'd been easy to jump on social media and shoot a tweet out uh when I was emotional and it wouldn't have been helping because it would not have been a part of the solution. It would have been just more part of the problem. And that's one of the first things you do is you go into dad mode. And my first uh instincts were to call and get on the phone with all of our players and zoom and make sure they understand hey I'm not going to control your platform but I want to make sure I educate you on how to use it the same way I would educate my sons on if you're getting pulled over here's how you need to respond and act and those are things that are uncommon conversations that not everybody has to have so for me to internalize all of this and again I'm put organizing this coalition and working diligently on this. I'm doing my late night with locks kind of talk show to kind of keep Maryland connected with, you know, the, the, the powers that the strength of what our Maryland network offers, uh, as well as continue to develop our team from afar um, and, and try to get my big butt in some shape. So um, my pandemic was very, uh, it was very productive. I had a productive pandemic break. So
0: when you're you're talking about those conversations with your players, um, I know one thing that was really important for you and for them was actual action, right? Like, you know, everyone can tweet something, everyone can say something, um, and then we forget about it a few weeks later. So what were some of the action items that the players wanted to do, that the program wanted to do to support them?
1: Yeah, I think the first one that was really telling was you know, instead of having all these individual statements that you tend to see from players and coaches, um, they wanted to do something together, unified as a team. And, you know, it's not as if we ha- didn't have some, some of the tough conversations within our team, because as I've liked to tell our team, as I've, liked, as I've told our team, um, the number one thing I'm looking for when you deal with these social injustices is respect. You know if you just have the common decency of respect for others and their beliefs, their opinions, um, who they are and their backgrounds, the respect part controls a lot of the decision making. It's when you don't have respect for others' opinions or their differences that where these issues and these injustices occur. So within our team, you know we have people on all both sides of the aisle, Republican, Democrat, uh, rich, poor. Baptist, uh, Catholic. And so I'm a big believer that, you know, people can be who they choose to be. And each of us are supposed to respect who they are. Doesn't mean you have to like it. um, Doesn't mean you have to agree with it, but to respect the fact that these people's opinions or how they live or their beliefs are different and not push mine onto them and then push theirs onto me. And so uh, our team unified and put a statement together And one of the challenges I offered to them was don't just put a statement about what the problem is. Get together in small groups, which we did first. Come up with how you feel to be able to put on paper what you are feeling as a unified team. And then also add what it is you intend to do to help be a part of the solution. Because we don't need any more people to be part of the problem. We need more people to be part of the solution of fixing, helping. the issues that we face in society. And so I was really proud. I mean, I think and believe we were one of the first teams to come out with a unified statement. I mean, there were a lot of individual statements that people made individually throughout the country, but, and they all signed their name to it. They put a lot of time and effort into it. And from that, the thing that jumped out is they wanted to make a difference by uh, via voting. Um, they, and not just, you know, everybody thinks voting means, you know, trying to vote somebody out of office. I really don't care who, you, who we vote for. I just think as a, a right that you have, and especially, uh, you know, I look back at my time. I mean, when I was in college, I never voted. I didn't exercise the right that a lot of people died for the ability to give me to vote. And you just take it for granted. And so we created some things and uh, where we educated them on the voting process within their communities, local, state, federal, uh, elections and uh, different websites, and the Big Ten also offered up uh, the websites and all the different things to help with the education piece of how and what to do from a voting standpoint. Um, they wanted to be a part of uh, helping through, uh, you know, the election, and so we've got a bunch of our players who have volunteered their time um, here on campus. Uh, you know, Xfinity Center has become a, a early voting site, and so we've got a bunch of our players that are uh, gonna exercise their uh, time or or give up their time to go and be a part of uh, helping with that, to help that run smoothly. Uh, They talked about uh, pushing uh, information out to get people to register the vote, which they all did and have have volunteered to do and even assist with trying to help people get to voting polls. And that's something that we're uh, working on, obviously with the pandemic that's created a little bit of an issue. but so those were the uh, the big points that they wanted to get accomplished, and then we've had some like I said um, programming within our program uh, where we've had the discussions about social and racial injustices, and you know we had Daryl Hill, the former Terp, who was the first black to integrate the South. Uh, he played for Maryland and integrated the ACC conference, and he spoke to our team about his experiences of traveling in the South in the '60s and. Uh, if it wasn't for white teammates and some of his closest friends still today, that you know they took a vote, for instance, on whether they wanted to play the game and not take him or forfeit the game, and they all said no. If he can't go, we can't go. And to hear those stories just reinforced to our team that that it takes all of us to make a difference. And you know they went down to Clemson and some of these other places and were unified and and, and stuck together. And, and now you look across the board and. You know, he was one of the first to integrate, if not the first to integrate football in the South. And he's a Maryland uh, grad. Um, and so we've done a lot of different programming like that to just educate ourselves. Long answer, but hopefully uh,
0: Yeah. Well it's uh-huh. it's 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 interesting because you always hear coaches, especially in college, talk about oh, you get these 17, 18-year-old teenagers and you help them grow up and become young men. And and really you do see so much growth and in, in that period of time, but it even feels like in this off season, there was so much growth or at least direct involvement, like you you helping um, engaging your players with real life conversations and, and real things that are going to change them coming out of this.
1: Yeah, there's no doubt. And being a coach, you know, our goal is to send you back the best version of yourself or a better version of yourself, both, you know, Academically, athletically, and socially. And we say that. And so, with all the things going on with the social injustice issues and racism and those things, um, that's part of the social development that we owe it uh, to these kids when we sit in their homes and we tell their parents that we're going to create a program that sends your son back home a man. And, uh, you know, some of them um, a better man. And, and we hope that's what gets accomplished through our program and through um, the time they've spent in our program.
0: So before we, before we wrap up, I am so curious about, you know, and another element of the weird six months that was is the big 10 postponing the season. And then five weeks later, deciding that they were going to start in October and I'm—I've talked to coaches about that five-week period and the immediate aftermath to the postponement, but I'm sure that was also something you've never experienced as a coach. And and I'm curious how you navigate that, especially right after an initial postponement when all your guys have been trying to work so hard to get back to play, and you kind of lose that that carrot that you dangle uh, to motivate them to, uh, to to practice, to play, to to you know follow all the rules and and wear masks and things like that.
1: Yeah, no doubt. Um, you know, I think one of the best things that we've, we've done around here is part of our culture is uh, we want to maximize it, and every day is it. We we don't spend a lot of time looking too far forward in our program, and we definitely don't look backwards. And so when you focus on the present, and I can remember when this pandemic hit, I I, taught, I challenged our team, and I said, listen, I don't know, this is... there's been no book written about this. We've never experienced what we're going through right now. And so every day is going to be a new day. And the only way I could ever stay sane personally as the head coach trying to run a program, during COVID from afar via virtually. I mean, I, I initially tried to put, Oh, we're going to get back on this date and this will be our schedule. And I had like 50 million schedules and it was driving me crazy because I'm a control freak on wanting to be organized. And I finally said, listen, go back to what the pillars of our program is. When I took this job, I challenged our team that, listen, we're going to be a team that maximizes every single minute of every single day and focus on being where our feet is. That's what maximizing means. Let's worry about today only and live it like there is no tomorrow and then deal with tomorrow when it gets here. And here I am trying to live outside of that thought process and that principle. Until having that pause in my life allowed me to say, you know what, fellas, this is who we are as a program. We ain't worrying about tomorrow. We're gonna wake up every day and figure out what we can do today based on the pandemic, based on where we are, state, local, federal rules and laws based on NCAA. And whatever the rules are today, that's how we're gonna operate. And then we'll get up tomorrow after we've maximized maximize the day, and we'll do it again and just keep stacking one day. and again. I live by that philosophy right now and the team has bought into it. And so when we had these breaks and pauses, though, they're very disappointing, um, it almost became like a joke to all of us in that, hey, said we don't know what tomorrow will be. So now we know what tomorrow is based off of the decision from the day and we'll, we'll deal with this right now. And when we find out tomorrow where we can be and what we can do, we'll live for that day. And to me, that's the only way we've been able to push through uh, like we have as a team and hopefully uh, it shows the way we go play and come out stronger.
0: So what, what was, you know, everyone's reaction when when you find out you are going to have a fall season, um, you know, y- it's going to start in October and it's conference only, which is, I mean, you guys are in a division that's always a challenge, so it's not even that different, but, um, you know, when, when you are able to, to get to that point. Um, and like you said, I mean, we, we've we just gone through it. It's been such a unique and challenging and real off season. Um, but to get to that point of, of, you know, these guys love football and they, and they get to play.
1: Yeah. One, I think when you don't have something or you lose something that you really love and enjoy, and it happens to come back to you, you're so much more appreciative of it. You You really like grab it, hold it, and don't want to let it go. So I think there's been a lot of that for our players. And I know for myself, the best part of my day is being on the grass with my guys and the players and, you know, practicing and just having an opportunity. So even when we didn't even have a schedule yet or know what we were doing, that was the best part of the day because having them around and just almost, it gives you a way to get away from the pandemic and hearing and reading about it. So, uh, definitely, uh, excited but then still cautiously optimistic that we're worried about today you know somebody asked me how excited am I that we're 10 days away from the game and I said listen I got my fingers crossed my toes crossed my legs crossed that you know nothing comes up because in 2020 and the way things have just been I don't want to be a negative or think negative thoughts but I just I'm gonna live for today and you know, when we get to that 10th day and, and I'm actually in the locker room and walking out into, onto the field, the you know, ball gets kicked off, then I'll know that we're there. But until then, I am cautiously optimistic and worrying about just today. And I'll deal with that day once we get to that point.
0: And just last question. So with the um, National Coalition of Minority Football Coaches, what, what is the, is, is there programming throughout the year, throughout the season? Like, what are the next steps there?
1: yeah we, we've we've we're we've put out and are putting out programming that'll take place over the course of the year. Uh, we've already uh, made contact. There's been some obviously some job openings, and uh, the coalition has been contacted um, by some some places and people and organizations uh, across the country um, uh, to ask us to to to, to be a tool. Or to be a to be a resource for for these organizations, um, and so diligently working uh, to continue to build it. Um, our membership has continued to grow, um, and I think with this programming, you know, part of it is that, like we said, the first P is the preparation piece, and so we want to do all we can to provide preparation to all the different levels of coaches, things that they can use within their day to day lives as a coach. Um, and obviously the promotion piece is now we've, we've partnered up with some people, uh, some analytic companies to come out with uh, some analytics and meaningful analytics to, to to use and provide who are the top minority coaches and the jobs they're doing and reaching out and through our connections and ties of trying to put out and make sure that people know who these people are. And then, like I said, putting together a list and uh, producing a list of, viable candidates for all the different job opportunities, whether it's a prominent high school job, a prominent college job, a a NFL job that uh, we can get to the powers that be that are making these decisions to, to give them a good list of viable candidates that are not just capable, but just need the opportunity.
0: That was my conversation with Maryland football coach, Mike Loxley. If you enjoyed this episode and want to hear more, please give us a five-star rating and leave a review. Subscribe on Apple Podcasts, Stitcher, Pandora, or wherever you get your podcasts. Coaches Clubhouse is also available on the SiriusXM app, free for most subscribers. Just download it today and tap podcasts. Coaches Clubhouse is part of the SiriusXM Podcast Network. The executive producer is Andrew Emmer. Sound designed by Robert Moore. Andy King is the director of sports podcasting for SiriusXM, and a special thanks to Sirius XM Senior Vice President of Sports Programming and Podcasting, Steve Cullen.
1: Sirius XM Podcasts.